Good morning. I'll be reading the scripture this morning. Uh, my name is Brandon York. I'm reading from Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voices goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Like most of you, I have um, a group of what I would call loves in my life. Um, Of course, that sets me up for failure immediately because I won't tell you about all my loves and somebody will say, well, don't you love this? But I'm just going to mention two just for purposes of the sermon this morning. One is kind of a trivial love which is the love of baseball. You know about that. That's why Dan and I connect. It has nothing to do with theology. It's all about baseball. Um, Another love of my life actually is philosophy. Or in the way it's often described, the love of or pursuit of wisdom. That's always been a love of my life. I've always loved it. Can't help it. So I tell you that because I'm going to begin with a quote from a philosopher, okay? Don't roll your eyes. It's easy to understand with my brilliant explanation, okay? So. <laughs> the philosopher's name is Immanuel Kant, one of the greatest philosophers of all time. And Immanuel Kant said this, there are two things that fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The starry heavens above and the moral law within. Now, I have no reason to believe that Immanuel Kant was thinking about Psalm 19 when he penned those words. But I do have to admit, I see some similarities. The psalmist speaks of the starry heavens and is amazed by them. There is some similarity 
between Immanuel Kant's statement and the psalmist in Psalm 19. But there's a significant dissimilarity between Kant's statement and the psalmist in Psalm 19. I say dissimilar because when Kant thinks about the starry heavens and the admiration and the wonder, he moves to the internal or moral law within. The psalmist looks at the same wonder of the heavens and moves to what is often called special revelation or the specific commands or laws that have been delivered to us by God. So you can see the dissimilarity. As a matter of fact, Kant uh, suggests that there is some kind of rational inner moral law that should be our foundation for ethics. And as admirable as his work is, I can't disagree more. I think that the law of God stands above, judges, and gives direction that the so-called inner law or my rationality or my heart does not provide. Uh, One of the things about Immanuel Kant is that he very deliberately was detaching the study of wisdom, philosophy, and especially ethics, he was detaching it from deity or divine law. That was one of the motivations. Having given him um, a special place in this sermon, I will drop it and then move on. I want to divide this psalm up into three parts. The first part is general revelation, and you see that in verses 1 through 6. The second part is special revelation, and you see that in verses 7 through 11. And the third part is, well, just a prayer. And you see that in verses 12 through 14. So we begin with the general revelation. Have you ever noticed, you probably have, that the Bible doesn't argue for the existence of God? It just states the existence of God. It doesn't get into a battle about whether or not God exists. It just assumes God exists. You know, you may have heard common phrases like this in your world. A phrase like, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. And the response might be, well, I do believe in God. An adequate, good response. But as I think about the Apostle Paul and Psalm 19, I wonder whether or not the psalmist would respond a little differently. Of course, he would say, I believe in God. But I wonder if the psalmist might respond this way. I don't believe in atheism. Because the heavens declare the glory of God, and it's obvious. Or as Paul says, the heavens declare the glory of God, Romans chapter 1. And we are all without excuse in the presence of this 
wordless manifestation concerning God. Those who do believe in God look at the wonders of the universe, and they come to the conclusion that you see in Psalm 19. Those who do not believe in God consider the wonders of the universe and come to a conclusion that God does not exist. That's a classic illustration of the same facts with a different perspective. That's the world we live in. The same facts with a different perspective. Notice how the psalmist unfolds this so-called general revelation. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. A proclamation that comes concerning God's power and God's presence. The heavens do it for us. Everyone, he says, is put on notice by the heavens above. But he goes on to say, there are no words in those heavens above. But still their voice is heard. Isn't that an interesting paradox when you think about it linguistically? Wordless voice? The heavens are declaring, speaking without words, the glory of God. There are no words needed. Words are not necessary, shall we say, from the psalmist's perspective, for proof. We frequently think words are necessary for proof. The psalmist seems to say the wonders of heaven are enough. He goes on to say that day after day, the heavens, they continue to pour forth this wordless speech. And night after night, they declare that knowledge. It's continuous. It's never-ending. It's always around us, says the psalmist. He goes on to put in poetry language, the sun has been set in the heavens. Notice, has been set in the heavens. Somebody set it there, according to the psalmist. And it comes out like a bridegroom or a strong man running its course and nothing is hidden from its light and its heat the sun itself is a reflected perspective concerning God himself that sun comes out day after day and nothing is hidden from its heat and it's glorious it's like a bridegroom coming out of his pavilion which was a beautiful sight It's like a champion, a strong man running his course and coming to the end or even before the course, coming out in anticipation of what is about to happen. That, said the psalmist, is what's happening day after day. Now, we move from that, the general revelation concerning God, to the special revelation concerning God, which begins, as I mentioned, in verse 7. So the psalmist transitions very quickly, almost abruptly, from that general revelation. And he says, in in very specific terms, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, of course, he's talking about the whole revelation of God, the whole Torah. 
We'll do our best to make application to that in a moment. But in short, it means the revelation of God. And what he had at his hands was the Torah. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Perfect, which means whole or complete. Reviving the soul means that you use it as a road marker for the way to live. And occasionally, as the psalmist will repeat multiple times, you look at the law of God, the perfect law of God, and you turn back from who you are to confess that the perfect law of God is not you. That's how it revives the soul. So every first Sunday of the month, we have communion. We speak about the Word of God, and then we return. We turn back, and we confess our sins, and we kneel at our Master's feet. And it revives our souls. It's not a revision of soul that's some sort of finger-wagging. It's a revision of soul that looks at the perfect law of God, realizes our imperfection, and then goes to the foot of the cross. And in that, our souls are revived. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Trustworthy, you might consider to be a, a road sign, shall we say, okay? A trustworthy road sign that says, At the end of the next quarter mile, you must merge into one lane. At the end of the next mile, the road comes to an end. The law of the Lord is trustworthy like that. It's a pointer towards reality, and it's absolutely trustworthy. If the sign were not trustworthy, you'd have all kinds of problems on your hand. If the sign did not exist, it would be a disaster because the road would come to an end. But the law of God is trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are are right. They're perfect. Rejoicing the heart. If I can use that image of a, a person who's traveling in road signs, I would apply that to a road map. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. There's something delightful about a trip. When you know where you're going, you're not trying to figure out the next turn. You see a map, or of course now with our GPS, we follow that trustworthy GPS, supposedly, and it makes our life beautiful. It makes it a heart that rejoices. I remember um, convincing my wife on one occasion that she needed to go with me west Um, and we were delivering some things to my son who was then in California. And uh, I I told her, you just never have experienced this before. You've got to experience it. I I had been two or three times all on my own. I drove from Bloomington all the way to Los Angeles, California. Only me in the car. And I loved every minute of it. I'm strange that way. I've thought about taking a trip all the way to Alaska. On that occasion, I think I'll take my son along for part of it. The point is, the grandeur of the West, particularly on the other side of the Rocky Mountains, is absolutely stunning. 
I said, you got to see this for yourself. She took the utmost delight in seeing that terrain. She was taking pictures with her phone and sending them to our kids. And finally they said, stop, mom, we know. (laughs) You know, part of it was the beauty of that creation. You know what the other part of it was? I was driving the car. And she could look. Now, she does have a lot of instructions for me when I'm driving. But for the most part, on that trip, she didn't tell me what to do. She has looked out the window and enjoyed the beauty. The precepts of the Lord are right. Like a perfect road map. Rejoicing the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, enlightening the eyes. Think of the psalm, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Or thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That is what the law of God is to those who believe. It's also associated with a fear that endures forever. Cowering fear? No. A fear that respects and is in awe of the sovereign God and his laws. And it endures forever. It's it's the same as it was when the psalmist wrote it. As it is in the 21st century today. The ordinances of the Lord are completely righteous. Now, I've mentioned this really multiple times before, but I want to remind you of what I've said concerning the gods of the Middle East, the Mesopotamian region, and the theories concerning the gods, which were prevalent and everywhere. By the way, it may be that one of the reasons the psalmist never even referred to atheism is because it hardly existed. Everybody believed in some kind of God. But the kind of gods that Mesopotamians believed in were gods that were fickle. Gods that were belligerent. Gods that were as sinful as the human beings. Gods who were competing against one another. And the human beings like us were squashed right into the middle, cowering in fear of what the rival gods would do. Ah. But the psalmist says, the ordinances of the Lord are true and completely righteous, which means they're always consistent. God doesn't do this and then do that. God doesn't say this and then say that. God is not under the compulsion of human nature. His ordinances are perfect. They are true. They're completely righteous. You don't have to worry about the goalposts being moved by a divine arbiter. That's the kind of God that gives us these ordinances. And then he, he, down near the end, gives us a flurry that's beautiful. The law of the Lord is more precious than gold. There was nothing more precious than gold. 
the most costly metal there was. Everybody held it in high regard. And furthermore, it's not just the value of gold. It is sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. That was the sweetest thing they could imagine. Natural honey from the comb. That's what the law of God is like, says the psalmist, to those who love him. Furthermore, in keeping this law, there is great reward. And it doesn't mean the kind of great reward where you get rich and you get satisfied with material things. It means the great reward of fellowship with God in this life and in the life to come. Or to put it another way, this life when well-ordered and following the statutes is a reflection of the perfect order of the life to come. In keeping them, there is great reward. The, the, the psalm ends with what I call a prayer. He says this, who can discern their errors? Hmm. Who is adequate morally or intellectually or as it relates to self-awareness to truly discern their own errors? You can't. Oh, you can call out certain things that were a misstep, but you can't really discern your own errors. Why? Because every single one of us, every single one of us needs the other to point out errors in our life, to point out things that need to be forgiven in our lives, sin, things that we cannot see, and things that we refuse to see. The law of God does that for us. It's that discerning. So please, Lord, he says, I understand who can discern their errors. There are hidden faults all throughout me. So please, God, keep me from willful sin. By the way, I'm not a proponent of Christian perfectionism, as I know you are aware This is one of those verses that makes it very clear that we're sinful through and through. Not just that we make missteps, but that we are so sinful through and through that we are willfully sinful against God on any number of occasions. We do the wrong thing because we know it's wrong and we want to do it. Keep me from willful sins. Now, you might say to yourself, how is that even possible? Well, of course it's not possible because you're always going to mess it up. But the rest of the psalm gives us a better idea. Don't let them rule over me. Because that's what sin does in our life. It rules over us. It becomes our taskmaster. We become its slave. Oh God, keep me from willful sin. And the willful sin that I know will enter my life, please do not allow that willful sin. Even the ones I confess and those I don't confess, help them not to rule over me. Help them not to dominate me. Oh God, I need your law to be sure that that does not happen. 
And then, Lord, if you grant me my request, I will be blameless of great transgression. So please, Lord, safeguard my life. Keep me from going off the rails. Use your holy law to keep me in check. I need you and your law, oh God. And then he ends with this final flurry, which is just beautiful. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my strength and my rock and my redeemer. Uh, For those within the Christian community who have dismissed the law of God, you're, you're missing it. For those authors that you may have read who suggest that the law of God should be unhitched from grace, they're missing it. Don't believe it. It has nothing to do with the theology of the New Testament. According to Paul, the law of God is righteous and holy and good. Of course, he's not responding in that way to all the judicial laws and the ceremonial laws. This This is beyond the new understanding concerning how ceremonial laws are not important to those who are Christ followers. Think of the vision of Peter. But Paul, beyond that, does not dismiss the law. He embraces Psalm 19 as a Christ follower. And so should we. So here's the conclusion of the matter. Um, The law of God is absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. Because, as Paul says, it's righteous, it's holy, and it's good. Second major point of application is the law of God provides important structure for life. We need structure in our life, don't we? Of course we do. Um, Rules of the game, whatever the game is, they're not onerous, although sometimes they feel like it. They actually enhance the beauty of the game. They make the game beautiful. I mean, there are some traditional curmudgeons like Dan Waugh who suggest that the pitch clock in baseball is uh, oppressive. But for, for, for some of us, we look at it and we say, it made the game more beautiful. Because that rule was applied. You don't have to agree with me, but surely you agree that a rule applied in a game makes it beautiful. Because otherwise, it's a brawl. It's a free-for-all. So the law of God provides important structure to our life. The law creates orderly travel in our streets. You know, yeah, you wouldn't call this the law of God. I'm just talking about law in general. Uh, One of the new things that's happening around here apparently is the elimination of turning right on red. Have you noticed that? All these signs all over. 
So just like Dan chafes at the pitch clock, I chafe at the turn right on red. But I, I actually know something. It's a safety feature. Because there's lots of people crossing the street and they have a signal that says they can walk and I can turn right on red, which is a bit of a contradiction and someday I'm going to hit somebody. The laws create safety in our streets. The laws prohibit criminal behavior and keep us safe. We know that right in our life. Here's the final thing I want to emphasize. Belief in a sovereign God, the moral lawgiver, provides meaning for life. It provides meaning for life. I told you I like philosophy. And I'm going to end with something else that's the opposite of the statement I just made. That the law provides meaning in life. And I, and I want to say up front, there are many forms of existentialism for those of you who are into philosophy. I'm only referring to one. The existentialism is Jean-Paul Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre said that human beings are absolutely free and yet forlorn. Why? Because God does not exist and we have to face all the consequences of this, says Jean-Paul Sartre. Allow me to read a more lengthy quote from Jean-Paul Sartre. Hear these words. This, what I just mentioned, is very distressing. It's very distressing that God does not exist because all possibility, if God does not exist, all possibility of finding values in a heaven of values or a heaven of ideas disappears along with him. There can be no a priori good. Now, that, that's a philosophy word in Latin. It just means there can be no standard of good prior to human experience. Okay? There's nothing above us in terms of authority, nothing that precedes human experience. There can be no a priori good since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. Nowhere is it written that good exists, that we must be honest, that we must not lie, because the fact is we are on a plane, not one airplane, a plane, a field. We're on a plane where there are only men or human beings. That is our existence, the plane of humanity and nothing else. And he quotes Dostoevsky at this point. Dostoevsky said, if God does not exist, everything would be possible. 
Then Sartre goes on to say, this is the very starting point of existentialism. Indeed, everything is permissible if God does not exist. And as a result, man is forlorn. Because neither within him nor without does he find anything to cling to. What a contrast to Psalm 19. God, your law is like honey in my mouth. It's like pure gold because it defines my reality because I have meaning that's above myself. I don't have to make up my meaning or make up my rules. I look to you, God. So I don't want to end there, okay? (laughs) In spite of those dark words, here's the truth of the matter according to the religious tradition of Christianity. There is a God and he is not silent. That God has spoken in wordless images and power and presence and with real revealed words. The second thing we know about God according to the Christian religion is that God is not a cosmic joy killer. That's not the intent of the law. That's not the intent of God. It's not the intent of anything related to creation. He just knows that without our our laws that are given to us by him, he knows without that, like Sartre said, we would be forlorn and we would be meaningless. And here's the good news, my friend. It's the gospel itself. The God who gave us those laws is the same God who came down and fulfilled those laws on our behalf. He's the same God in the person of Jesus Christ who stepped up willingly on that cross and took the punishment for the sins, the things we would break according to the law, took it within himself and destroyed it by rising again so that we could live eternally. If we have that perspective on God's law, no wonder with the psalmist we can say, that's sweet as honey, it's pure gold. Or to use the words of another passage of Scripture, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let us pray. Our gracious Master and Lord, sovereign creator of the universe and merciful God that you are, we thank you for your law. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice. And we pray, Lord, that as we look into your law, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen.